Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday, the 20th of November. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Australia's delivered an astonishing upset to win the Men's Cricket World Cup for a record sixth time, beating India. The Aussies weren't the favourites and they started the tournament with two big losses and injury concerns. But in the final, an impressive 137-run innings from Travis Head steered the Australians to a comfortable win with seven overs to spare. Alexandra Humphreys reports. And Glenn Maxwell has hit the winning runs and Australia have won the 2023 World Cup. They're all rushing on to celebrate. The Australians leaping about out there. They have silenced the crowd here. It was supposed to be India's day. Unbeaten during the tournament and playing in front of a more than 100,000 strong home crowd with the Prime Minister Narendra Modi in the stands. They have beaten the hosts and favourites in their own cauldron. They've beaten them by six wickets with seven overs to spare. An emphatic victory. Instead, it was Australia's to enjoy and the elation was clear. And here we go, the moment that Australia's been waiting for trophy is lifted by Pat Cummings, who's got an immense smile on his face. It was Travis Head's innings that led the way, hitting a match-winning 137 runs, becoming just the third Australian to make a century in a World Cup final alongside Ricky Ponting and Adam Gilchrist. Head had earlier taken a difficult diving catch to remove India's captain Rohit Sharma for 47, a key moment that opened the way for Australia's bowling lineup to make their way through India's middle order. Could be caught. He's brilliantly caught. That is a wonderful catch and Travis Head running back from cover over his head. India was dismissed for 240. Australia looked shaky early at 3 for 47, but a partnership between Head and Manas Labashain steadied the way. Head was caught with just two runs left for victory. Australia reached the total required with seven overs to spare. Australian captain Pat Cummins spoke after the match. I think we saved our best for last. And, yeah, a couple of big match players stood up and, yeah, we're pretty chuffed. Cummins praising the decision to select Travis Head after a hand fracture put his participation in the World Cup in doubt. Oh, amazing. And I think, you know, the unheralded few, the, um, you know, the selectors that backed him in, even when he was at a broken hand, and the medical team to get him back. Um, it was a big risk that we took. How fun is he to watch? This victory caps a six-month period in which Australia beat India to win the World Test Championship and retained the Ashes in England. Oh, yeah, crazy. I mean, uh, yeah, this year will be a year we remember for a long, long time. Um, yeah, it's, it's been awesome. It's been uh, pretty much spent the whole Aussie winter away overseas playing, but we've had a lot of success, and this pips it all. This is top of the, uh, top of the mountain. Travis Head was named player of the match. Yeah, it's a lot better than sitting on the couch at home, so, um, yeah, very lucky that everything went well. To be able to do that uh, on, on a big stage in front of a full house under all that pressure is, is a nice thing to, that I'll be able to look back on later in my life. India had looked unstoppable throughout the tournament. Indian captain Rohit Sharma reflected on falling short. Uh, we were not good enough today. Um, but again, I think uh, really proud of the team, how we played uh, from game one. Uh, just wasn't our day. Uh, we tried everything we could from our side. Uh, but yeah wasn't supposed to be. The win marks Australia's sixth Men's World Cup victory. Alexandra Humphreys there.
The federal opposition says it's troubling that the Albanese government kept secret for several days that Australian Navy divers had been injured during an encounter with a Chinese warship. Australia's called the Chinese military actions unsafe and unprofessional. The United States says it's the latest example of coercive and risky behaviour by China. It is Monty Boville reports the incident was only made public days after it had happened and after the Prime Minister had left an overseas summit attended by China's president. It was revealed over the weekend that a Chinese warship had used sonar pulses while divers from the HMAS Toowoomba were in international waters near Japan, trying to clear fishing nets from the frigate's propellers. The Australian divers suffered minor injuries but the government didn't reveal Tuesday's incident until several days later. The Shadow Defence Minister is Andrew Hastie. And the Prime Minister missed an opportunity at APEC to raise this with President Xi. He has to explain to the Australian people why he failed to raise this incident, why he failed to seek an apology and why he only announced this after he'd returned from the trip. The Prime Minister's office isn't commenting although the government has branded China's actions unsafe and unprofessional. Not only had Anthony Albanese just attended the APEC leaders' meeting with President Xi Jinping in San Francisco, but it's been less than a fortnight since his historic trip to Beijing to see the Chinese leader. I think it is very troubling that the Albanese government only announced the details of this malicious act against our Navy divers after the PM had left the APEC summit. And that is where he boasted of a long conversation with President Xi and Wang Yi. And so it's unacceptable that he didn't raise it with those two leaders. He should have petitioned them and asked for an apology. Jennifer Parker is the Director of Defence Policy at ANU's National Security College. She served 20 years in the Australian Navy. For another ship to approach from that proximity is dangerous and it's actually in breach of international law in my view. She points out that Australia and its allies have been subjected to an increased number of aggressive incidents from the Chinese military. And we've seen that in 2022, where a Chinese aircraft deployed chaff into the engines of one of our P-8s, clearly a deliberate act. We saw a Chinese destroyer in the Arafura Sea put a laser through the cockpit of a P-8. And we've seen from a US perspective them release, I think it's 180 incidents since September 21 of close calls between aircraft. So there is an increasingly reckless behaviour and it is clearly part of a trend. The United States is also weighing in. In a statement on social media, the US Assistant Secretary of Defence for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, Dr Eli Ratner has described the Chinese destroyer's actions as dangerous adding that it's the latest example in a pattern of coercive and risky operational behaviour. The most senior Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator Roger Wicker, has issued a statement saying the Chinese military's actions are unacceptable and that the US and its allies need to continue the hard work of bolstering deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. That report from Monty Boville and Stephanie Boris. Days after Israeli soldiers entered Gaza's largest hospital, more than 30 premature babies have been evacuated from the compound. Meanwhile, the Israeli military is continuing to build its case to justify the operation at the Al-Shifa hospital, claiming it's discovered new evidence of a tunnel network there. It comes as negotiations continue on a possible deal to free some of the Israeli hostages captured by Hamas. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Jerusalem. Alison, what do we know about how the babies were evacuated? 
Well, the World Health Organization says 31 babies have been removed from Al-Shifa. The hospital has been under siege for multiple days since Israeli troops stormed the complex last week, searching for what they say is Hamas infrastructure. Uh, we've heard from doctors within Gaza that the babies were being held under worsening conditions without proper food, water, milk, even taken out of incubators because the hospital was running out of fuel. Gazan doctors say eight babies died during the last few days, but the Palestinian Red Crescent Society has been able to rescue 31 babies today and move them to the south of Gaza, reportedly to be moved to Egypt for further care tomorrow. At the same time, Israeli troops are still inside al-Shifa. Uh, they've released new images and information claiming to have found a 55-metre-long tunnel 10 metres underground. And the Israeli military says uh, they suspect that it will lead to a Hamas command centre. Now, Hamas has always denied that they have been running their operations underneath al-Shifa. And Alison, there's growing speculation there might soon be a deal to release some of the Israeli hostages captured by Hamas on October the 7th. This is the one of the main missions of Israel to get back those 240-odd hostages. Uh, today, the White House Deputy National Security Advisor has said that there's been significant progress made in recent days and hours towards reaching some sort of a hostage negotiation deal. But uh, they say that it's still very sensitive and certainly Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, has told reporters that nothing has been agreed yet, particularly nothing around uh, any discussion of a ceasefire. But in what seems to be some promising language, the Prime Minister of Qatar, which is the country that is mediating these negotiations, has said that there are only some very minor obstacles that remain uh, towards getting the hostages released. Uh, this is the Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin al-Damarama al-Tani. The challenges that remains in, in the negotiations are very minor compared to the bigger challenges. They are more logistical, they are more practical, and I believe that uh, with the willingness of both parties to engage and to have this deal uh, uh, moving, we can, we can reach there. Qatar's Prime Minister and before him, our Middle East correspondent Alison Horn in Jerusalem. For decades, adding fluoride to drinking water has been considered a public health achievement because it significantly reduces tooth decay. While about 90% of Australians drink fluoridated water, Queensland lags behind. And as Emma Pollard reports, dentists and doctors in Queensland want it to become mandatory. Residents of most large Australian cities have been drinking fluoridated water since the 1960s and 70s. But that's not the case for more than a quarter of Queenslanders. It's a public health failure, according to dentist Dr Nora Ayad from the Australian Dental Association. We have studied water fluoridation for decades and the results cannot be questioned. At a population level and even at an individual patient level, we see a reduction in dental disease. Fluoride is a naturally occurring mineral that strengthens tooth enamel. It can be added to drinking water supplies and the National Health and Medical Research 
Council says water fluoridation reduces tooth decay by 26 to 44 per cent. But it can be controversial. Some anti-fluoride campaigners have civil rights objections. Others say it lowers the IQ of children, a claim debunked by Australian research. We're talking about one part per million in a water supply. It's just not capable of causing the negative effects that people are concerned about, but we can absolutely see the health benefit of it. Queensland has a chequered history with fluoride. Townsville started adding it to water supplies in the mid-60s, more than 40 years before then-Labor Premier Anna Bly announced a statewide mandate in 2007. Our kids have the worst teeth in the country and we need to stop that. But her LNP successor Campbell Newman dumped the mandate and put the power to fluoridate in the hands of councils. Lynn McLaughlin is the mayor of the Burdekin Shire in the state's north and says expense is a major factor. The cost would be prohibitive, not only to instigate it and implement it, but the ongoing costs. Further north, the Cassowary Coast Mayor, Mark Nolan, says he recognises the oral health benefits, but fears the anti-vaccine sentiment seen during COVID has deepened the distrust of fluoride. Council's been dealing with the uh, the lobby group around the anti-vaxxers and uh, time-wise, this would be a terrible time to try and Force fluoride. While southeast Queensland residents have fluoridated water, 51 out of 77 Queensland councils do not. That includes the major regional centres of Bundaberg, Rockhampton, Mackay, and Cairns, as well as almost all of the state's Aboriginal councils. In a statement, the Queensland Health Minister Shannon Fentiman says while she wants to see more Queenslanders getting fluoridated water, the Palaszczuk government is committed to local decision-making. Emma Pollard reporting there. Just days after the federal government axed funding for 50 major infrastructure pro- projects, it's doubling the money it'll spend on road projects during the next few years. There'll be more than half a billion dollars in extra money for programs targeting potholes, washed-out rural roads and accident black spots. Annie Guest reports. Over the past few years, Gladstone Mayor Matt Burnett has witnessed the damage done to local roads by extreme weather. What I've seen in the last at least 10, 15 years is certainly an increase in natural disasters, particularly um, rain events. But we've had some significant fire events as well in the last couple of years. But it's the, it's the rain, it certainly can cost a lot of money to re-establish that road network. To help councils like his meet those rising costs, the Infrastructure and Transport Minister, Catherine King, says the federal government will gradually boost funding for the Roads to Recovery program, doubling it to $1 billion a year by 2027-28. There'll be money to fix bridges and accident black spots too. All good news to Matt Burnett, who's also the Vice President of the Australian Local Government Association. We welcome funding from the federal government, particularly around roads. Uh, fantastic news for councils right across the country. The most exciting part for us today is obviously the roads recovery uh, doubling, which is what we've been calling for for many years. And there won't be a council or a mayor or a council in the country today that isn't grateful for that extra funding. Marion Terrell is the Transport and Cities Program Director at the Grattan Institute. This is an excellent decision. It's offering councils a significant funding boost and that's really important. But what's also important is that it's a predictable funding boost. They're going to be able to count on this. Only last week, she released a report calling for more funding for rural and regional roads. So now that it's been promised, she's pressing the federal government to prioritise those councils over larger cities.
The road funding boost comes only days after the government axed funding for dozens of big infrastructure projects. But Marion Terrell says fixing potholes, washed-out rural roads and accident black spots is better value for money. You can only apply for funding under black spots if the, the site that you want to repair or upgrade has got a benefit cost ratio of two to one. In other words, the benefits are double the costs and also it's um, been a site of collision crashes in recent times. By contrast, many of the mega projects, like inland rail, for example, had a, a benefit cost ratio of one to one. The Infrastructure Minister, Catherine King, says the extra roads money will support regional communities and help move rural freight. Any guest. A year on from climate change-induced floods, almost half of all children in Pakistan are facing stunted growth or malnutrition. In some areas, food is in short supply and healthcare facilities haven't been replaced. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias reports from Lahore. In this hospital in Lahore, beds are filling up with malnourished kids. Some cry as doctors monitor them, others are too weak to make a sound. Research shows 44% of Pakistani kids are now malnourished or have stunted growth because of the repercussions of climate change. Mumtaz Ali's son, Sulman, is three. An all kid his age should weigh at least 11 kilograms. He is very weak, weighing less than one kilogram. Because of heavy rains, crops of rice were destroyed. We don't have enough food. Last year, a third of Pakistan was plunged underwater after one of the worst floods in the country's history. It was caused by unusually heavy monsoons and melting Himalayan glaciers, both caused by climate change. The floods destroyed 80% of Pakistan's crops. Now the country's struggling with a food crisis and parents like Momtas can't find food for their kids. My relatives' crops were destroyed because of heavy rains and flood. The environmental damage is happening in tandem with Pakistan's debilitating economic crisis. Farmers are still waiting for insurance payouts and the country can't afford to rebuild. Professor Mohammad Harun Hamid, the head of Lahore's Mayo Hospital, says beds are filling up with malnourished kids. Climate change influences the whole social fabric you know, Pakistan is primarily an agriculture country. The produce that comes is the backbone of our economy. Researchers are worried that any global cooperation or funds that could go towards climate change are now going towards war in the Middle East. World leaders are due to meet in Dubai for the next climate change conference, COP28, at the end of the month. But there's not much hope for consensus amid political divisions over Israel and Gaza. Pakistan contributes less than 1% of global emissions. Asif Shirazi from NGO Islamic Relief Worldwide says his country will continue suffering without international support. There is a need to help each other because this climate crisis will not stop here. At the moment, it's maybe this region, Pakistan or Bangladesh or India, but this will go to other places also. This is Amini Dias in Lahore reporting for AM. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. Hey, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. For many of us, COVID has drifted from our thoughts, but infections are surging again. So what should we be doing as this next wave takes hold? 
Today, infectious disease expert and director of the Burnett Institute, Brendan Crabb, on the new variants, the latest vaccine, and why COVID is still a force to be reckoned with. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.